humans. How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 163, and I recorded it just about two weeks ago in Park City, Utah, where I sat down with Toby Mamis. Uh, Some of you may recognize the name, others of you may not, but Toby has been the longtime manager of Alice Cooper. Uh, as a young man, Mammoth wrote for American Publications, Cream, Zoo, World Performance, Friday Morning Quarterback. He did Freelancing and Circus, Cry Daddy, Hit Parader, We, Penthouse, the Los Angeles Free Press, and on and on and on and on. Uh, he made his mark in, in the industry, the music industry in the beginning with famous Toby Mamis Public Relations based in New York and then LA. Uh, he worked with Apple Records, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Blondie, The Hollies, Barry Manilow, Uriah Heep, Leonard Skinner, New York Dolls, and then of course uh, went on to do co-management for The Runaways and Blondie and then managed Joan Jett and The Blackhearts and, uh, of course, Alice Cooper being his longest-running client and friend. Um, and, of course, uh, a lot of you may have heard of Shep Gordon. Uh, he has worked alongside Shep for a very long time. So Toby uh, was very gracious and took time out to sit down with me and have a really interesting conversation about stories from from his experiences. This guy, I'm telling you, he has seen a lot. He's experienced a lot. He's worked with legends and just the nicest guy, really funny and, and, and charming and sweet. Um, I very much enjoyed our conversation together. So now I know some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, you just did a manager type person on the show. And I don't like to focus too much on music stuff or any one topic per se, but I just was very lucky. Um, Toby's and my mutual friend set this up, uh, Wayne Helper, shout out Wayne, and I certainly jumped on it. And if you haven't heard Mary's, Mary Martin's episode from two weeks ago, it's really extraordinary. Again, the stories that these people hold are just, if you're into music at all, <laughs> it's really quite something. And even if you're not into music, but just the the adventures and the stories, they're just phenomenal. Um, the links page on Hey Human Podcast has got a ton of stuff on it for this episode. Uh, Toby talks about so many different bands, music I've never heard of, and uh, so I made sure to to put those up there on the links page. So definitely check that out. So yeah, heyhumanpodcast.com. You can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Of course, there's the Amazon portal on the front page of heyhumanpodcast.com. And it's an ad-free podcast. So when you shop Amazon, do so through that portal. It helps support the podcast and keep it ad-free. And of course, there's a donate button on that main page as well. If you feel inspired and you want to help support the podcast, uh, please do so that way. It really is helpful. Another helpful thing is to rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. It really, it's a big deal. It um, only takes a few minutes and I really appreciate it. So definitely, if you're so inspired, please get on there on iTunes and rate and review the show. Social media, Hey Human Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. 
And then, of course, uh, Susan Ruthism for all my regular social media, just me stuff, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and SusanRuth.com if you want to know more about me and things like the paintings I paint and the songs that I write and sing and all that kind of stuff. So that's all out there as well. Uh, I spent this past week without a phone, which was very interesting, driving around Los Angeles uh, without a GPS system. I relied on the good old MapQuest, wrote everything down in a book, and used that and the force to get around. Boy, oh boy, it does really remind you how much you are dependent on a phone when you don't have one for a few days. But I caved. Well, really, I didn't cave. I had no choice. My phone went belly up and I had to get a new phone so back on the the grid tucked into the matrix like a happy drooling <laughs> iPhone person Mac product person next week's episode in honor of the 4th of July I've got a really special guest coming on the show I'm super excited about it so make sure to tune in for the July 4th episode of Hey Human because there's a cool human it's gonna be on the show very excited all right everyone uh without further ado here we go toby welcome to hey human podcast okay i think that might be good <laughs> we have to give a shout out to our mutual friend wayne for talking you into doing this wayne halpert it's your fault yeah he's a dove i love him so much um thank you for being here i appreciate it and technically i'm here you were already here because we're in Park City, Utah, and you are a big skier. Yeah, I live in Park City, Utah. You're, is, you're visiting. Is that because of the skiing? Yes. I moved here so I could ski 100-plus days a season at Deer Valley. Wow. Which is the best place to ski here in town, and anywhere, I think, but especially here in town. Have you always been a skier? Well, you start young. Mm, I didn't. I, I, I did, probably around the age of four in Vermont, oh. but then um, moved to the city because of my dad's work gradually weaned off skiing because it was a four-hour bus ride with a change in Albany and um, just ski with a bunch of farmers. I didn't really get the whole girls and skiing thing. I missed that whole thing. But I did decide to stay in New York and ice skate at Walnut Rink on weekend mornings when it was a quarter and it was kids only, no adults allowed, with all my junior high school and high school friends. And that was a lot of fun. And then we would go to one or another's apartment, not mine, uh, actually, um, and uh, listen to records under the effects of certain herbs that are illegal still in most of the country. But getting better all the time. But we were 13, <laughs> 14, 15 years old. Sure. In the late 60s. That's a, the time appropriate for yeah. beginning that journey. Was your first kiss on the skating rink? No. No, no, no. Well, first real, no, no. At, first real, like with tongue, I mean. <laughs> well, that was just a week, no. Um, <laughs> Just uh, happened. <laughs> no, it was back in those days, but not at the skating rink, and not, actually not at one of the listening parties that we would do in the afternoons. No, do you those remember were a the girl? Innocent. Oh yeah, I remember every girl. Who you could say first name? Uh, no. No, dang! Uh, no. Come on. I will say the first girl that kissed me. Oh. Um, in my in my elementary school playground in Shaftesbury, Vermont, when we were in second grade, maybe uh, Jeannie Morgan. That I remember. Second grade, yeah. a girl who knows what she, she wants. She snuck up on me, yeah. Yeah, well, that's how you had to do it back then. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's frowned upon these days, the sneaking up part. Yeah. <laughs> I used to run up on boys, bite them in the ankle. As soon as they fell down, I'd kiss them. Wow. 
very very uh, aggressive yeah i learned that from our our chihuahua okay <laughs> All right, so you're a kid growing up, digging the the winter sports and things like mm -hmm. that, and obviously the sitting around and listening to records. Did you immediately were you drawn to a certain genre or? Yeah, it was summer sports too because uh, mm. in the summer in Vermont, as a kid, you would play little league baseball and go to the lake, go swimming, and the, both of them played local radio stations who were playing rock and roll. This is pre Beatles, because I'm old. But it was Beach Boys and Four Seasons, and then and Leslie Gore. Leslie Gore blew my mind. I don't even know who that is. You should look up Leslie Gore. Okay, well, absolutely. Um, and uh, blew my mind. And then we moved to the city, and then it was the Beatles, and then it was, yeah, I was totally into rock and listening to the radio, and um, taping songs off the radio, and buying singles, and then buying albums. And I remember going to House of Oldies in the Village when I was probably 14, maybe 15. And it had been killing me that I couldn't didn't know what this song was that I knew since Little League and, and, and Swimming at the Lake in Vermont. And I had to have it. And I didn't know what it was, so I sang the first lines of the song to the guy behind the counter who later became a good friend. Um, and he said, yeah, I got it. Maybe I know Leslie Gore, 99 cents. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, um, and I started building a collection. And uh, now I've got more of an accumulation than a collection because you can't have everything. And there are many people with many more records than I have. And I know I, I'm not, it's not a competition anymore. <laughs> At one time it was kind of a competition. But yeah, so I just be, I fell in love with music. And this will all tie back to everything we've talked about already. At the end of my so was it seventh grade, I guess, um, so I was 12 years old because I was a year I skipped first grade. Hmm. So uh, there was a, um, a, 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 a day where I went swimming with a friend and we gorged ourselves on hot dogs and I got very sick. And I don't think there's a link between the swimming or the hot dogs or the sick, to be honest. You didn't because, wait that half hour? <laughs> because it ended up being appendicitis. Oh, no. But the night before that, I had been at a makeout party with all my seventh grade friends. And, um, and then we went, then my friend Roland and I went swimming and then we had all the hot dogs and then I got sick and then I had my appendix out. And it was the end of June. So it was the end of the school year. We were supposed to go to Vermont and finish my little league career at 12. And uh, I couldn't because I had stitches. And back then the appendix, the appendectomy was, a, was not as simple as it is now. And it, it was six weeks with, with no physical activity and like a week or two, which seemed like an eternity, with stitches and nothing carbonated. To, that would burst the stitches if you burped or belched. This is 1965. Wow. I know you're young. <laughs> now um, they just pull it out through your nose. No, it's just a whole different. It's a whole different procedure, and uh, I don't know about the nose, but it's a whole different procedure. And actually, I think it's a belly button. So I couldn't. It is. So I couldn't do any physical stuff. So I couldn't play little league. So instead of going to Vermont to play little league, I went to Ipswich, Massachusetts, where my best friend's family from Vermont had rented a home for the summer. Um, and I couldn't go swimming, and I couldn't play dodgeball, or I couldn't play baseball. I couldn't do anything with them. But it was beautiful. It was fun. It was my friends. It was outdoors, you know, weather. But I stayed indoors a lot because I couldn't do anything physical. And I listened to the radio a lot. And that was what converted me 100% into rock and roll was the summer of 65. So from the makeout party to the swimming to the hot dogs to the little league to the rock and roll. So 1965. Wow. A great year for rock and roll, by the way. Do you remember the first record you purchased? Yeah, I can tell you the first single I bought was The Name Game by Shirley Ellis on Congress. And the first album I bought was the Petula Clark Downtown album on Warner Brothers. And I still have both of them. That's so great. Oh my gosh. It, it, uh, 
it predicted, if that's the right word, uh, my future involvement and obsession and uh, passion for women in music, mm. which became kind of my calling card for a long time. So how how was that? So you don't even know anything about me. Did you research me? A little bit. Okay. Yeah, I don't like. <laughs> here's the thing. I don't like to um, look up. To, it's sort of like dating. I don't like to look up too much about the person because I I like my listeners. I want to be like, oh my god, that's so cool, you know. And if I already know. My, oh, right, I'll okay, so you, genuine, yeah. you know? Well, I did end up working with with a bunch of uh, interesting female artists. Yeah, I know that. So Joan Jett. Joan Jett, well, the Runaways first. The I, runaways. I was friendly with Joan before the Runaways, before she was Joan Jett, when she was a Susie Quattro fan, because I worked with Susie Quattro, who was the person she most looked up to that inspired her. And um, so I knew her through the Runaways as well. And then post-Runaways, I took over managing the Runaways when they got rid of Kim Fowley. That part's not in the Runaways movie. The Runaways movie jumps from... The band falling apart and having, you know, frustrations, which is when they fired Kim, all the way to I Love Rock and Roll being a hit single. The whole middle part is me. And at the premiere, which was here at Park City, the Sundance Film Festival, somebody, it might have been Kenny or Kenny Laguna, who's the manager-producer that I hired to actually produce and write with Joan, or his wife, uh, Meryl, leaned over and said, you know, that whole, the whole Toby part's missing. The whole story of how we got to here with her is that part. That was sort of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, where was I? I lost my track. Uh, women. Women. Oh, yeah. So then there was The Runaways, which Blondie. led to Joan Jett Solo. Before that, there had been Blondie and Susie Quattro. And before that, Yoko Ono, who I thought was an underrated and really harshly criticized person, not because of her art necessarily, but because of her life. Well, it is interesting to think if Yoko Ono hadn't been with John Lennon, would she have been taken more seriously for the she, performance? Well, she artists? was at the time, before John Lennon, regarded in some circles as an interesting, uh, you know, artist, mm. you know, of, of like pop and unusual art. Mm. Um, whether that would have continued, it probably would have, because I think her whole life has been a work of art. You know, uh, she created her own persona the way many artists do. And, uh, but I just always thought that, you know, she was doing a, a kind of art and, you know, who are we to judge? I mean, you don't, you don't have to enjoy it necessarily to at least respect and admire the passion that the artist puts into it. Oh, but I also thought she did, vil- villains, I, right? I also <laughs> thought she, she made a couple of really interesting records and mm-hmm. I think she brought a lot of, a different side of John out that maybe never would have come out. He was looking and he found. But if he found somebody else, a different side of it might have come out. So what, what she found an interesting side of John that was fascinating and I thought was great. And, you know, I don't ever speak ill of Yoko Ono. I don't have any, you know, reason to. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that after a couple of years doing the PR, she replaced me with somebody else. That happens, you know. Uh, Were you around during the love-in time? No, I was after that. I was too young for that. Oh, okay. I was around during the political time. I met them in the political time when they moved to New York and were very politically active and they were, were moving in all my circles. They were, they were meeting all my political people that I knew because I was a high school radical activist. They were meeting all the rock writers that I knew because I was a young underground newspaper rock writer and they were meeting all the um, record industry people I knew because I was as a writer I was meeting all these publicists and record people. They just kept meeting people that I, we were moving in the same circles and finally we met. Yeah. 
It's a, that story I'm not going to tell you because it would take the whole podcast and hopefully it'll be in the book that I write. Oh, good. You're well, right. If I write the book and if somebody gives me an advance. Well, you know, it's interesting because when people there's a say... Connection there. The advance comes before the writing. Yes, it does. Uh, when people say your name, they immediately, of course, go to Alice Cooper, but I don't think people realize the foundation that was laid by you in the underground scene for so many aspects. We, well, you know, I've worked with Alice Cooper now for 33 years, which is literally, literally half my life. It's yeah. like a... It's not like a civil service job in the sense that it's a lot more fun than, without any, without meaning any disrespect, more fun than a civil service job. But it's 33 years, and uh, that's half my life. So it is a big part of my life, but it's not the most significant part of my life. Because the things that I did along the way to get there, I find at least as interesting, if not more interesting in a lot of ways. The political stuff as well as the rock and roll stuff. Do you so, think you would have been an activist had it not been such a politically charged time? Do you no, think I, you would have been drawn to it anyway? No, we were all, we were all of a certain age being drawn to, to social issues of the day. Uh, I don't know, maybe in the 50s or 40s I would have, maybe in the 80s or 90s I would have. I don't know. I just know I was in the right place at the right time, a little younger than most. Went to my first demonstration when I was 13. Which one? It, it was a mobilization on Fifth Avenue against the Vietnam War. And, uh, and I then started getting more involved and I started organizing stuff you know I got very very involved and uh, my high school I was just looking at a copy of the first issue of my first underground newspaper when I was at Stuyvesant High School in New York it was called The Flea because the principal's name was Dr. Fleedner and his nickname that you would never use to his face was The Flea because that would get you in a lot of trouble which it did and uh, he hated me and um, right there on the front page of the first issue of The Flea which I just happened to be looking at the other day um, is my coverage of a forum we had at Stuyvesant with some students from Columbia University that were Stuyvesant graduates who were part of or witnessed the legendary Columbia sit-in, which was really a big trigger event, and people still talk about it to this day. And there were, there were passionate people who were from SDS who had been at Stuyvesant, and there was also a, a more moderate anti-war activist who was not necessarily in support of all the goals of the sit-in, but was there to provide some balance. His name was Jerry Nadler. You might have heard of him lately. He's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee who's on TV every day. He's a Stuyvesant graduate, and I may have given him his first press coverage <laughs> at that point. I, he made his name and never appeared in a newspaper before that. And so that's sort of interesting. How do you feel about the fact that we're, in a lot of ways, in the midst of the same damn conversations that were being had well, yeah, it's, it's exactly the same conversation. It's not just it's not just about war. And it's not just about government. And it's not just about transparency. It's also about uh, women's rights. And it's race about gay and, rights. Yeah. It's about uh, civil rights. And yeah. it's. Uh, I said that the other day to somebody. It's like amazing. We we were just we were doing this 30, 40 years ago. Why are we still doing this? And I, I, frankly, I don't understand why. I mean, there are obvious reasons why. There's a, a, a reactionary evangelical Christian movement in this country that wants to impose a Christian theocracy very similar to the Islamic theocracies in the Middle East that they attack. And, um, and they've, they've grown in momentum, and they now inhabit the upper echelons of the current administration. Nearly every cabinet person in the, in the current administration's cabinet is an evangelical Christian activist. Um, Trump himself has no ideology and no agenda. 
they are using him to drive their agenda. He's not making these appointments of judges. They're doing that. He's not making He's these ambassadorial appointments. Sure. He's just going along with whatever they want because he likes being in, in the top job. Of course. And if you look at his politic even a decade ago, it was absolutely opposite of what yeah. it is he, right now. He just doesn't really have an ideology. I don't think he does either. Yeah. I think he just does whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't want to make this decision. No, about it's that, okay. But, but everyone's but, entitled to. But so, about. yeah. So the activism now is interesting. But yeah, why are we not in the streets? I million strong in Washington or New York there's there's one good reason why I'm not sure we should do that and I don't mean I don't want to sound like an old fogey because I'm not an old fogey in this regard but I don't want to give him an excuse to call out the National Guard and declare a national emergency and postpone the 2020 elections that is something we cannot afford I'm not sure how we get around that because we definitely need to make our, our feelings known and the best way is public demonstrations. But I worry that he would do what uh, authoritarians always do, which is hire provocateurs, start a problem, create an issue, and then... The wag the dog. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's worse than wag the dog. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's crystal knocked. Hmm. You know, it's, wag the dog is chicken feed. It's, yeah. It's a plaything compared to that. But yeah, but really create violence and, uh, and then blame the violence and and, uh, and then shut down civil liberties. Completely. Did you read this morning Hong Kong? Uh, the Hong Kong uh, lady, re, uh, she backed uh, she, she did. backed down. She backed down. That may create problems for her in in in, in uh, the capital of China, in Beijing, which I used to call Peking because I'm so old. Uh, that may create problems for her, but the the power of those people is pretty amazing. It really that's, really that's a story is. that that resonates and should resonate across the United States right now. I agree with you. Yeah. Did you, were you drawn to musicians to work with that had a political backbone? Yeah, that's or? how I got in this mess in the first place. <laughs> okay. It's not just that I loved rock and roll. It's that I, all of a sudden, I, all of a sudden there was a band in New York uh, called Elephant's Memory that was playing the rallies, playing the fundraisers, marching in the streets, and they were making records about it. They had a record called Skyscraper Commando about the hard hats that attacked the demonstrators down in New York City during the post-Kent State uh, occupations. They, had, uh, they were really politically active, and uh, their album was called Taking It to the Streets. And, uh, and we, we got to know each other. I couldn't even tell you how, when, or where, but it just happened. And they were they were a great rock and roll band, by the way. Um, they're not as well remembered as many others because they didn't have big hits. They had had a couple of minor hits, Mongoose, and before that they were on the actually the, uh, Midnight Cowboy soundtrack. And uh, they were more of a they had a sax player who was great, and he was also their singer. They were a great band, and um, and we hit it off. And I was hanging out with them, and I was writing for these underground newspapers. You want to do a twelve-hour podcast? Yeah, so I do. I was writing for these underground newspapers and starting to write for these rock magazines. And going to see Elephant's Memory and hanging out with them. And then I started bringing my writer friends to come and see them. Because they didn't have a manager, a publicist. They were even, I think at that point, they'd be out of their deal with Metro Media Records and without a label. So my friends would write about them. And I, thought, and I knew that publicists, I'd started to meet publicists, so I knew I was kind of doing what publicists do. But they couldn't afford me. I was just bringing my friends. Because that's what you do when you're friends. And, um, and through the... The story that I'm not going to tell you the details of, we actually got them together with John and Yoko. And um, that's how I got to work with John and Yoko. They were impressed with all the press clippings. And I'm like, me? And John was like, you should be our publicist in New York. And I'm like, okay. 
So it was that easy. It was literally that casual. Uh, and I was probably 18, maybe 19 by then. Were they open to your ideas, the things that you wanted to do? Well, it was, it was very simple stuff. It was, you know, it was... When they were already John and when you're a traf You're a traffic cop when it's John Lennon. Yeah. Because you get you get inundated with requests, and then you see, you figure out very quickly what's a waste of time and what's not. And then you think, well, what what might be good? And there's this really cool young reporter at the New York Post who later went on to be a much more important reporter at the New York Times named Jane Perlez. And she did a long interview and a profile on Yoko in the New York Post when it was a great liberal paper, not what it is now. And a big feature. And and I did. I placed that because I thought she deserved that. But mostly it was being the traffic cop and just getting requested and dealing with them, you know, and learning the business because, frankly, I was didn't really know what I was doing. I was learning on the job, you know, with Elephant's Memory, with the New York Dolls, who were also my friends that I was doing PR for at the time, you know, with all the Apple stuff, not just John and Yoko because I was doing album Pro review projects album by album for Apple and learning from Al Steckler at Apple who was a real mentor um, and his name pops up sometimes in Stones things now because he worked for London Records and when, when Alan Klein took over managing um, the Stones from Andrew Oldham the story is that Mick Jagger said to Alan Klein you, you hire Al Steckler away from London have him in your office running things and he's a legendary guy because he literally worked closely with the Stones all the way through Sticky Fingers when they left and formed their own company uh, and um, and the Beatles until Apple dissolved I mean he's a truly legendary guy that nobody knows about except those of us who worked with him and know how much he taught us so did you think it, it sounds like you were on a precipice it was uh, to go publicist versus writer did you was it hard for you to make that decision or did it just happen naturally? I think it was the same as my, my political activities where I really enjoyed, I was going to demonstrations and then I started help organizing them. It was being a rock writer or organizing them. I found I, I'm attracted to logistics and planning and, and, mm -hmm. and things like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't because you can make a little more money doing PR than writing, which of course you can. It was not a monetary thing at all. I was still living at home with my parents. It was really, this seems more fun, more like a challenge. And then, the PR thing over the years led me to management because I was working with managers and I'm like, I can do that. Not that they couldn't. I worked with some really cool managers and I don't ever want to denigrate them, but I realized I could do it. So I did. Who was the very first that you managed? Oh, wait, tour managing, of course, is different than tour managing. managing. Yeah, but I, I only tour manage as a function of management. I never mm -hmm. tour manage as a career. I did mm -hmm. it for a while with Alice Cooper because I'm a control freak. We had a great tour manager who had to leave for lifestyle reasons, still a good friend, but needed to just rest and recover. And I jumped in and said, I'll do it. And if it doesn't work out, I'll stop. So I did it for a while, and then it didn't work out so well, so I stopped. But I was a manager at Alive handling Alice day to day before I tour managed him. And I tour managed him for about 12 years, but it's been 33 years. So in, over the course of that time, I only tour managed him for 12 of those years. Were you managing Alice Cooper, we're talking yeah. about? Were you managing Alice when uh, he was, I think, wasn't he banned from playing on TV or something? That's a was long that? time before me. Oh, okay. But I was friends with him then because they played in Max's Kansas City, the original band. Yeah. And I'd gotten the first album, Pretty's For You, which was pretty whacked. It was pretty out there. And um, then the second album came out, Easy Action. I'm like, this is pretty, this is better. It's more like a real band. And they're sort of cool looking. They had like long hair down to their butts and they wore makeup and they were, they dressed outrageous. And, and I thought that was great. 
And, and he was really one of the first to do that. He was the right? first. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the crazy world of Arthur Brown at, at face paint and stuff like that, and there was, you know, and Screaming Jay Hawkins did some theatrics, but really he was the first in rock and roll to put it all together. He wasn't. It was the five of them. It was a band. And and my friend Kenny Schaefer was their publicist. And he was like, you got to come down to Max's and see Alice Cooper. I'm like, well, yeah, the two albums are pretty interesting. You know, I'd love to see them. And that's back when bands played two shows a night, four or five nights a week. They come in for a whole thing, and um, and I went both shows every every night for like four or five nights. And I was like transfixed, and I started. I met the managers, who was the Shep Gordon and Joe Greenberg. Shep is still the manager. Shep Gordon's legendary, of course. Yes, um, and they made a documentary about him. Yes, they yeah. did. And uh, Joe Greenberg left the company in '75 when Shep and Alice moved to California, but I befriended them and I befriended the band, and it was. They, they had no money. They were playing clubs. They were driving on a station wagon, staying two or three to a hotel room. I don't even know. And they had very few props. They had like a, I think it's a French door that like the top's open and the bottom's not open. Maybe a Dutch door. And and Alice would lean through the door and, and sing this song called Nobody Likes Me. And the band would go, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And it was like, that's how simple the props were. He opened the show banging a hammer on the mic stand, you know, who was singing a song called Sunrise. And at the end of the show, he'd come out to the lip of the stage and chew up newspaper and spit it out into the audience. Now, by that time, my high school newspaper had shut down, but I had stacks of old papers. So I brought him a stack of papers to save him 50 cents a day, because 50 cents a day was a lot back then. So we were friends ever since. Oh, that's so fantastic. But, <laughs> but it was a long road to get there, you know? And then I started, when, when Shep called me in 86, Alice had been re retired for about three years to clean up from all his, his drinking and lifestyle issues that he had where he was like a mess. And to, he had been married, but they wanted, he, he and Cheryl had a, a young daughter, and he really needed to clean himself up and learn how to write a check and buy a quart of milk and change a diaper. And, you know, he had to, you know, he never learned any of that stuff. He didn't. And um, so after three years, he was making a comeback record, and Shep called me up and was like, you know, we, um, Alice is coming back. And we got a new album, we got a tour planned, and I need somebody to handle the day-to-day, -day, you know, and you work the way we work, and we, you know, we know you, and if you're interested, come on up and have lunch and listen to the record, and we'll talk. So that was the deal. That was, that was mid-'86. And they trusted you because they had already... Yeah, because they sort of knew how I worked, because we'd been friends and kept in touch the whole time, you know, over the years, you know, and... Uh, you know, when I he stepped out of things for a minute, did you know he'd be? I mean, when it's in your blood, it's in your blood. With Alice, you mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, I saw him at, in Meet Him at France, the big music industry convention. I was with my friend Harold Bronson, the co-founder of Rhino Records, and they do performances every night at Meet Him, and um, and he was performing, and he didn't look very good. He was clearly unhealthy, and I, it's not a secret, so I'm not violating confidence. He was in bad shape. He ended up you know, months later in the hospital getting cleaned up. Um, and I turned to Harold and I said, I don't want to go backstage and see him. It's just, he doesn't look well. Uh, it's not good. And so we went backstage and hung out with uh, Van Den Young, the legendary guys from the Easy Beats who produced ACDC and all kinds of great stuff and instead, because they were there with the opening act. And it was much more fun. I told Alice that story. He says, I wouldn't have seen you anyway. I was in such bad shape. I didn't see anybody. So, um, so I was worried, actually, going back into it. I said to Shep, I don't want to do it if going back on the road and back in the game is those triggers that gets him back in trouble. 
and, you know, drunk and whatever. You're one of the few people in the industry who would probably utter that. <laughs> well, I think Shep would have said the same no, thing. No, no, yeah. sure, but, but I'm but saying Yes, it. there are people who are enablers who just right. want the commission right. and exactly. the job. I get it. Exactly. And, and Shep said to me, nah, look him in the eye. Look, look him in the eye when you come to lunch. This was that first conversation on the phone. You'll see. He's, he's good. And I said, because the last thing I want is to be responsible in any way for him falling off the wagon. You know, because you love him. So we had a great lunch. Listen to the record. We went on our first promo tour a few months later, and we were in England. The first stop was England. We were going to Holland after that, and we're in this fancy hotel. And the butler at the fancy suite at the fancy English hotel sets up this huge bar with bottle after bottle after bottle of booze because that's what they do in England in fancy suites when you're a big big celebrity. And I said to myself, Do I put the bottles away or not? If I don't and he drinks, I'm going to have cement boots in the Hudson River, thanks to Shep, because he'll kill me. But if I leave them there, Alice has to learn to live in a world with alcohol around. And I, I don't know, he's an adult. I, I don't want to treat him like a child. And I didn't say a word to him. I just wrestled with it and left it there. Three days later, we're on a plane to Amsterdam. And I said, I told him that. And he was like, there was booze there? Like, he actually claimed that he never saw the booze there. And all the journalists that came in and out, maybe out of respect for him or whatever, had tea, coffee, seltzer water, Cokes. Not one bottle of liquor was touched in that suite for three days. So he passed the test. That's great. And I'm alive. <laughs> How did you survive all those years? I mean, were you never really getting down and dirty? Or? No, I was, I was, I'm addictive to some things, but apparently not drugs Skiing. or alcohol. <laughs> Skiing, yes. Food, I have food issues. Uh, I like all the wrong foods, um, which doesn't help my skiing. But um, <laughs> that's never developed a taste for alcohol, ever. And um, yeah, everybody smoked pot back then, but I, I guess that's not where my addictive personality, everybody has things they're addicted to, and those are not mine. Mm -hmm. So as I said to somebody the other day, yeah, I, my memory's really good still. I remember really weird details from a long time ago because of the lack of alcohol and drugs. So Your book's going to be wonderful. When I, was, <laughs> when I was working doing PR with Leonard Skinner one night, huh. Ronnie Van Zant, I think, said to me in a group, there was a group, I think Ronnie said it, I was like, how come you never drink with us? Now, at that time, I'm 23, so I could drink legally. And, uh, and I said, somebody's got to be sober enough to write it all down after you guys get in a fight and mess everything up. And he's like, good point. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you, um, when you worked with the New York Dolls, tell me about that a little bit. Because I, I think that's a fantastic... I'm an amazing group. You yeah. know, um, maybe I will always default as a music lover to passion over technical virtuosity. It's like, I would rather listen to... The New York Dolls or the Sex Pistols or the Muffs, by the way, the Muffs, great band, over Styx or Yes or Supertramp. All three of those groups have made good records, but I prefer the passion of somebody who maybe sings a little off-key or is a little sloppy on the guitar, you know, but, but puts it all out there. And so the Dolls, when I first met uh, Johnny Thunders, he was Johnny Jindala's. We were in line to buy tickets for the Stones show at Madison Square Garden in 1969. And I was with my friend's fourth in line, and he was with his girlfriend's sixth in line. And we were there for three or four days doing overnight shifts, taking turns, my friends and I. 
And um, that's where I met him. And he was a cool rock and roll guy. We kept in touch. And I, they were rehearsing in my neighborhood. And I went to a rehearsal. I met the rest of the guys. That was later. That was not 1969. But then I met the other guys. And it just became a natural thing to try and do some PR for them. Because I was already working with Elephant's Memory at that point. And I thought the dolls were great. I mean, I thought they were just fantastic. And we did all those shows at Max's and the Mercer Arts Center. And if you saw a vinyl which unfortunately didn't live up to its potential, the TV series that Scorsese did and Mick Jagger was involved in. And it did not live up to its potential. The opening scene, I think, is the Mercer Arts Center collapsing at a Dolls show, which is not true. It collapsed years later. But it did collapse, but not during a Dolls show. Um, and, uh, and they were fun, and they were wild, and they were lively, you know, and I got them a lot of press. Somebody just sent me a on Facebook a, an attachment, a clipping of a thing from Record World, the old trade paper about a doll's thing and it described me as the ubiquitous famous Toby Mamus teenage publicist or something like that. That's before they had their record deal. Um, and I, again, I did what I did with Elephant's Memory. I kept bringing all my friends, although I had more friends now in the music business because I was doing real PR, bringing all these writers down, but not just writers. I brought record company people, publicists, photographers, everybody to see them at Max's and, and, and the Mercer Art Center. People like Bob Gruen who later ended up doing a lot of photos and video with them and temporarily managing them. Like, Paul Nelson, who actually signed him to Mercury Records, you know, and because um, I just invited everybody I knew to come and see them because they were so great. Hmm. And um, then later when uh, we form formatted uh, New York Dolls with just Syl and David, because unfortunately Arthur is dead. Both Billy and Jerry are dead. Johnny's dead. Um, but it was a good band they put together with a couple other guys, real slick, and, and uh, I was in the band. They're in London. We had them open for Alice for a bunch of shows. And I missed the first show. When I was busy, there was like four shows, and I said, I saw David after I said, I'm sorry I missed the show. I'll, I'll catch it tomorrow. You know, I have to see it. And he just looked me in the eye and said, You of all people do not need to see another New York Dolls show. I was like, That's not true. You should always want to see another New York Dolls show, which I believed until their last performance. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they were great fun. But then they got signed by Mercury. They got uh, management with Lieber Krebs, and then I got cut out because I was a small time guy and they needed big time guys. And that's the way it works in the business. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't lose any sleep over it. Was it a lot different, do you feel, um, when you worked with the all-women groups versus, I mean, Blondie wasn't all-women, obviously, but Blondie or the Runaways or these, in comparison? Or did you tech it? The There's way? no real difference, I don't think. Musicians and entertainers are musicians and entertainers. The only thing I noticed, and I worked with Susie Quattro first of all the women, not, not except for Yoko, um, but they didn't do touring. We did the one-to-one -one show at Madison Square Garden and the Mike Douglas show. And so we didn't do touring. The one thing that you do learn when you work with a female artist, um, I think, is that you always have two jobs. You have your job and you have security. You always want to just keep an extra eye on them because they are more subject to, to harassment. And maybe it's less true now in the sense that there's more of a cocoon around entertainers, so there's less access so you don't have to be as worried. But back then it was always like keep an eye, always keeping one eye on the artist. You know, just because. Because you don't want something wrong to happen. So so I, that carried through from Susie Quattro to Blondie to the Runaways and Joan Jett, absolutely. And you sit down with everyone, I assume, all, and say, okay, here's the plan and do it together? Or do you come up with a formulation? And uh, it's a, you work with a manager. When you're a publicist, you work with a manager. When you're a manager, you're the quarterback, and you work with the agent, and the publicist, and the accountant, and the lawyer, and everything else. So yeah, it's, the artist is part of it, and different artists want to be consulted at different points. Some artists like to be very involved from their very beginning, and others just want to know the game plan when it's done. So you know, each artist is different. There's no, no two artists are alike. 
You know, I, I, I've never worked with the Rolling Stones, but my understanding is that Mick Jagger's involved from day one. Taylor Swift runs her own career, mm-hmm. pretty much, with a great team, with a great team, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, I think she's probably a business mastermind, that one. She picked up it, picked she's, it up pretty quickly, and, yeah. and either she's got some people nobody knows about who are doing it, or she's pretty darn smart. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, of of her whole operation. A friend of mine, uh, and I love what she does in her life too. Her fan interaction is great. Yeah. Uh, she's a big supporter. We can fans. we can um, we can clock the timing of this recording by saying that last night she showed up at a Stonewall celebration in New York, and played "Shake It Off," you know, unannounced. I mean, she just does the right thing time after time after time. She had a little problem with an overly restrictive photo release form for photographers that was problematic for professional photographers that had to get resolved. But that was for people, not her. To, I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure she didn't read the details of the photo release form. A friend of mine played on her first record, uh-huh. and he said he and I were writing, and he said, he said, yeah, this 13-year-old kid came in and we were like, okay, what's gonna happen next? And she said, I want it to sound like this, I want this, yeah. I want this. She knew exactly what she wanted. She knew her own mind. Yeah, no, I have a feeling that that's, that that's... I think she's been that way. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. And uh, and I think it's it's great. I think artists like that are great, but there are other artists who just wanna know the end result. Just wanna mm-hmm. know, where am I going? What am I doing? Sure. You know, and um, so it's everywhere in between. You never know, each, each artist, like I said, each artist is different. Do you have any uh, skin of your teeth stories? Skin, you mean like a, like, like a last minute save? Yeah, kind of a, yeah, exactly. Well, just logistically, but not really, not from a PR point of view or a financial point of view, but like flights getting canceled and rerouting 20, some, 20 plus people, you know, to get to Australia and not miss a day. Yeah. A lot of that. That's part of that's part of the challenge to me. That's part of that's part of the fun for me is is those kind of things. It's very stressful, but but you feel really good when you get it done and it's all done right and you didn't screw anything up. As a tour manager, how do you sit down and talk to an artist who may be pushing their own human limits? It's their human. I mean, it's their life. You know, you have to, you you have to caution them. I mean, especially as they've gotten older mm-hmm. now with a lot of older artists, and if you see a lot of them are not working multiple nights in a row because they they're, they just, it's a stamina or for singers it's a voice or sometimes it's the drummers who work very, very hard. Um, and um, and the crew even start getting older because a lot of these bands are loyal and have loyal crew for many years. So, you know, you see, you see musicians now in their 60s and 70s, but you see crew guys in their 50s and 60s um, still working. And yeah, there's a stamina issue and for singers there's a voice issue. So you'll see a lot of artists working every other night or maybe two on, one off. Uh, but the days of, mo- of artists of a certain age doing three or four in a row without a day off, those are pretty much gone. And that's just facing the facts because artists are working longer than they, longer in life than they used to. Um, when he was really young, now that he's in his 70s, uh, uh, Bob Dylan was subject of a great interview in the New York Times, and he didn't, and still doesn't do a lot of interviews. And this was a great profile that I vividly remember as a fan and as a publicist because the, the writer asked him, Blood on the Tracks was just getting this most amazing acclaim as one of his greatest albums, you know, and, and the, the writer says, so you've written some of the most colossally successful and important songs of all time. You're wealthy well beyond, well beyond your wildest imaginations growing up as a kid. So why do you still do it? And he was like, that's what I do. I write songs and I sing them for people. And that's, that's, he still does that, which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So, isn't it? Music 
there's nothing like it. You know, there's nothing. It's well, you a can, gift of the there gods. There are some people who will tell you books are like it. There are some people who will tell you movies are like it. I'm one of those people who would say music is it. But, mm -hmm. um, but it's culture. There's nothing like a cultural experience to enrich you and excite you and motivate you. And for me, it was music since I was 10, mm. you know, and, um, and, uh, what music excites you right now? Is there anything that you're really into? That's it's tough. It's tough to find new music you like because there's so much music out there, but there are so few filters and guides to help you find what you want. You know, it's like, I find the algorithms on Pandora and Spotify useless of like this so if you like this you'll like that I'm like I find that I generally don't like any of that um, I listen to the greatest radio station in the world um, Sirius XM channel 21 Little Stevens Underground Garage which plays real music uh, virtually no synthesizers virtually no electronic drums real guitars real drums real singers real records whether it's soul rock country pop folk whatever and uh, and they play songs from the '50s all the way through till today, and they they play some interesting artists that are newer that I like, that I that I enjoy, and then I see interesting young artists sometimes on the late night TV shows and have for years, you know. Letterman uh, uh, was great at that actually, you know, and they still sometimes show these bands that that are not even signed or first records just coming out, and you're like, whoa, what was that? Like I saw the Yeah Yeah Yeahs once years ago, and I'm like, that knocked me off my chair. You know, so um, the discovery of a new song or a new band or a new singer is still, I mean, whether it's revolutionary or not. I mean, I was sitting in a hotel room in Australia one day on my laptop and I had the TV on and they still had, they still had MTV Australia had actually played music. It wasn't full of, you know, of uh, reality. reality stuff. Yeah. It was actually music. <laughs> and, and this song came on and I was like, and I stopped typing. And I stopped looking at my computer. And I started watching the screen, and I was like listening to this song, and it was like one of the best songs I heard in a long time. It wasn't rock and roll, but it was a great song, really well sung by a, a singer named Missy Higgins. A song called "Where I Stood," and I went literally shut down my laptop, went out and bought the CD that day, and then I got to see her perform live here during Sundance one year to showcase. And she's made a lot of other records, and she's very good, but that one song is just imprinted in my brain. So. I'm excited to seek out all these people and put links for them on the podcast. If you link Missy Higgins where I stood, people will thank you for years. Yeah. All right. Good. When, you know, people talk in the music industry about the X factor, the thing, the whatever that is. Charisma. That's what it boils okay. down so to. So in the 60s, way before your time, there was, and I'm trying to remember this as accurate as I can. As I said, my memory is usually pretty good. Uh, there was a, what I think was a special on the, uh, educational channel like the PBS channel of, of New York WNET uh, about charisma it might have even been called charisma or something like that and it featured a young group called uh, Bun I was Bunky and Jake I think because it was or maybe Jake and the Family Jewels by them it was a guy named Jake who had the charisma and the story was that he had the charisma and I've talked about that ever since because you either have it or you don't I mean there's a lot of guys out there um, we joke about the guys that just sing and play and look at their shoes. There's no, there's no charisma involved. I'm not going to mention any names of bands. And a lot of them are very successful. But I, I don't want to go to a show and watch a guy looking at his shoe or a woman looking at their shoes. I want them to have fun on stage and, and communicate their excitement and their passion. So, um, so yeah, charisma is a, can compensate for a lot. 
Mm. Nothing compensates for the lack of songs. You still have to have the songs. You can have the biggest production in the world. You can have all the charisma in the world. But if you don't have a song to sing, who's going to pay attention? Uh, that's, you know, it, it all does come back to the song. The writing. All yeah, about the writing yeah. and the, yeah. now, the melody. You may not be a great songwriter, but if you have access to great songs, mm -hmm. like let's talk about pop groups like the Monkees and Herman's Hermits uh, and the Motown acts who had great songs either written for them or they had the first choice of them because they were having success. Great songwriters who aren't necessarily performers provide a valuable uh, thing to, to, to the world as well. There's some great, and great, still great do. songs. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm not going to... As a songwriter. You don't, you don't have to write your own songs. It helps to write your own songs because then you're not relying on other people or competing with other people because if you're a pop diva, you don't want to com be competing with Mariah Carey for that next pop song. You know, because the artist with bigger sales is going to have an edge on getting that song first. You know, but... Um, which is why artists like the Monkees and Herman's Hermits got those songs first. Uh, yeah, it's great song. A great song is Neil a great Diamond song. wrote a bunch of those, right? Neil Diamond wrote some great songs. Yeah. And he wrote for the Monkees. He, his first recorded song was uh, was submitted to Jane the Americans. They were the first artists to record him, and they have a great story about 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 Neil Diamond in the early days. That I don't. It's their story, not my story. But um, yeah, Neil Diamond was a great writer before he he became a, a great recording artist. But they saw, and a lot of people saw right away. Uh, that he could record and, and, and release his own songs that he didn't have to write for other people. Before, I think he saw it. So. It's like Springsteen wrote for a lot Well, of Springsteen was recording and, and performing and trying to be an artist. He wasn't working as a... But people were... Neil Diamond was songs. actually trying to sell ah, songs yeah, yeah. before he became an artist. Sure. Bruce Springsteen was writing and performing his own songs, and they were being covered by a lot of other artists because they were so good. And um, the Hollies... Had great success with him as they and they were very early on him. And Manfred Mann uh, had a uh, Earth Band. Had, Man, Manfred's Earth Band had a great Springsteen cover. A lot of people had great Springsteen success before Springsteen had great Springsteen success. So because it's the songs. Yeah. So. The the legendary songwriters. I mean, woof. Yeah, we need you. You need the songs. You, you, I'd we, like to see a Ghost of Tom Joad. I mean, I love that record yeah. so much. And Tunnel of Love, like, oh god, the writing is just filling her back. It's a, it's a craft. It's an art. It's a science. It's a mystery. It's witchcraft. <laughs> so you know, I don't know. You can if you can learn it. You either have it or you. I don't. think you either have it or you don't. I think you can. Um, you can develop. You can get better at your craft. But I do think it's an innate. Well, that's true of a lot of things. With. I mean, I think some people are better at math than others. Sure. Some people are better at foreign languages than others. I have no aptitude for foreign languages. I'm pretty good with English, for high school dropout. But I'm. Oh, you dropped out. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, that's <clears throat> interesting. Why? I went to Stuyvesant High School, which is one of the top academically rated high schools in the country for every year since it's opened, which is probably, I don't know, it was like early 1900s, so we're talking a long time. And uh, it wasn't meeting my needs. I just really felt stifled, you know. Uh, I was busy with my political stuff, busy with my writing, getting into the whole music thing. I was just doing lots of stuff, and nothing in school was helping me do it. And, uh, and it was so rigid, so regulated. And um, it's a factory the specialized high schools, all high schools are a factory for the workforce. It's a trade school or it's an intellectual school, but it's all a factory to prepare you to be a cog in the machine. Spoken like a true old radical. And, uh, and I don't want to be a cog in the machine. 
I, I, I decided to drop out for my junior year, and I had a friend named Johnny Avedon, whose father was a photographer, Richard Avedon, and we decided to start our own high school called the New World School. And through Johnny's connections, we raised some money, and we found a guy to run it for us, and we rented a townhouse. That guy turned out to be a mistake. We rented a townhouse in Chelsea, and we... We had a bunch of students, maybe a dozen or so, and we all decided we, just were gonna, we were going to learn what we wanted to learn. We picked our own courses. We went and found professors from the various colleges and universities around Manhattan to teach us part-time, like once or twice a week. It was completely unaccredited, completely student-run, completely insane, but we did it for a year as an experiment, and we were good at it. We, were, we went there, we had meetings, and we had our classes. It wasn't like we just partied although we did listen to a lot of music. And, um, and it was a grand experiment in student-run, completely free-form education, um, which was a big movement at the time. They just opened a college called Hampshire in the UMass system, which was also much less structured. You know? And my sister went on and formed another school after mine called the Elizabeth Cleaner Street School, which lasted I think, maybe two years. And they actually wrote a book about it, which is in the libraries of a lot of teaching schools these days. And so that was an interesting time. I, I, uh, I wanted to finish my junior year and then leave. And I failed the French Regents. In New York, there's a Regents exam where you have to, if you don't pass the Regents exam, you don't pass the grade, the, the, the class. So I had to take summer school to finish my junior year. I had to take the summer school French lessons at Washington Irving High School, which was right near Stuyvesant, and where I had been arrested during the racist teacher strike a year or two before. And... Um, and I took the Regents exam, and I had my backpack and my sleeping bag with me. And, and uh, my friend Roland met me, and that's the same Roland that I talked about earlier. And we, we uh, took the path tubes to Jersey City to meet my friend Richie Paulino, who loves his, loves his name being checked here, Richie Paulino. Hi, Richie. And um, <laughs> who later ended up working for uh, Homeland Security, um, and, uh, improbably enough. <laughs> Because he had a car back then. He was a couple years older. A little Fiat Spider. We jumped in his Fiat Spider at Journal Square in Jersey City and drove to Woodstock. Up the shoulder, past all the traffic because the Fiat Spider was so small. That's how I dropped out of school. I went to Woodstock right after the last test. So. I mean, Oh, yeah, by the way, I, oh, by the way, did I mention I was at Woodstock <laughs> with a press pass in the press tent? Okay, let's get some of those stories. <laughs> no, there's no stories. We, just, we drove through the traffic, jumped out of the car. We had press passes because I'd gotten them from Rat, the underground newspaper, and it was a complete mess. The, you know, the, the fences were gone. It was like... Total chaos. Yeah. yeah in the best and way. It didn't seem chaotic, but it was definitely chaos. But the press tent had a tent, which means there was a covering, which was great when it rained. It also was for working press, so it had tables for their typewriters to, so they could write their stories, and then there was pay phones so they could phone their stories in because that's how it was done in the old days. So I got to sleep on my sleeping bag on a table under a tent. So I never experienced the mud except just walking around during the day. Um, yeah, spoiled. Uh, but yeah, I was at Woodstock. I rode home with different people. That's a different story. Which show? I can't even tell you the names of the people. <laughs> you probably uh, kissed a few of them too. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to go there because uh, I can't tell you the name of the girl. But... Um, <laughs> Um, but it was it was extraordinary. The music was amazing. I don't remember a lot of the music. I remember Jimi Hendrix. I remember Shauna and I. I remember Richie Havens. I remember, oh, I remember the Who. Shauna and I. You know, Why did they not? I loved. I loved Shauna. I loved. I loved Shauna and I. And um, they were great. A great New York act. 
they came out of Columbia University as a joke and became serious and became real. And Didn't they have like a TV show? They had a TV show, although some of the original members were gone by then. It, was, it evolved over the years. Some of them were still there, you know. Um, and then, unfortunately, what most people remember them from the TV show is Bowser's comedy parts, not how lovingly they captured the 50s and early 60s era of, of rock and roll um, so well. And they were great. I mean, they were great. They were so much fun to watch. And, and I always thought, and I used to tell Ed Goodgold, who was their manager, that they, he should launch the Shauna Nets, because again, my female obsession, like like do all the girl songs, get a girl group and call them the Shauna Nets and be part of the show. And he never did. And to this day, I think I was right. But What was the experience with Jimi Hendrix for you? Seeing Jimi Hendrix? Mm. Well, you're in your kid. When, when I bought that first Jimi Hendrix album, uh, Are You Experienced?, and I heard his version of Hey Joe, which is a song I loved in the original, not the original, but I would say the most definitive slow version, which is Tim Rose. You can clock that one, Tim Rose, Hey Joe. Um, which is, I believe, where Jimi Hendrix learned the arrangement because they were playing clubs in the village at the same time. Um, there's a fast version, which is the birds and the leaves, more of a West Coast version. But the, the, the Tim Rose version, I think, is the slow version. And, and uh, uh, that album blew my mind. I got that around the same time as I think the first Cream album came out. And then the world changed when these artists showed up with this virtuosity, this insane, you know, approach to their songs, which weren't like three-minute pop songs. So, yeah, the world totally changed. And I got to see Jimi Hendrix at Hunter College Auditorium. My mom got me the ticket. I think it was $2. I was in the last row. And, um, and uh, it was uh, John Hammond and I think Air Apparent were the opening acts. And I was with a bunch of friends, and one of the friends took offense at my Viva Che button that I was wearing and set my hair on fire. I had a big afro back then, but Isro, the Jewish afro. And that was not fun. I was wearing a big black cape. I don't know where I got the cape, but I was wearing a big black cape. And we all dressed crazy then. I was, you know, you can look the date up. I was probably 14. Um, it was not my first show. It was one of my first shows. But yeah, I mean, Jimi Hendrix was amazing. I saw him many, many times. Went to the opening of the Electric Ladyland Studios as well. Electric Lady Studios, because I was in the business by then. And, um, um, you know, you, there's Jimi Hendrix and then there's everybody else. And I do say that with all due respect to Jeff Beck, who is the top of the everybody else. But there's Jimi Hendrix and then there's everybody else. When I was a kid, my, my brothers were much older than I am, so they brought their music to me. But I remember um, my eldest brother moved back home with my parents because he was going through rehab and stuff. And uh, I try, I think I've told this story before. I went and knocked on his door, and uh, I didn't really know him because I didn't grow up with him because he was so much older than I. And he opens the door, he looks at me, hands me Jeff Beck Guitar Shop, um, a Satriani record, and I think a, a Dylan record, but I just remember that Jeff Beck specifically, he hands them to me, he said, until you listen to these, I'm not talking to you. And he sent me away. Well, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Although he gave you the wrong Jeff Beck record. Oh, it should have been. It should have been Truth. Ah, okay. Yeah, well, guitar Shop's good. Jeff Beck's made very few poor records. Yeah. But, well, but boy, it blew me away. Truth is, uh, truth is an important record in my life. And, um, and Jeff Beck's an important artist in that sense. Uh, Incredible. When, they, when the original Jeff Beck group came to New York and played Carnegie Hall with Rod Stewart singing and Ronnie Wood um, and on bass, um, I went on my first date with a, uh, my first really serious girlfriend and a night and a weekend and an event that will, is burned into my memory because it was so, so powerful. 
you know, in every respect. The whole evening went way better than anyone could have ever predicted, although she might disagree. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, and, but that's a great album, Jeff Beck's Truth is the one. What, what else did he give you? Uh, Satriana. Satriana Surfing with the Aliens yeah. is the one. Yeah. I, w I was on tour with Alice and I took, he had a guitar player named Kane Roberts who was like a muscle guy built like Sylvester Stallone. And he, he had a, a guitar gun that shot flares. And, <laughs> and, but he was actually a very, very good guitarist, although he looked like a cartoon figure. And we were going over to Boston, WBOS, the college radio station in Boston, to do an interview with him for his solo album, which had just come out. And they were playing something, and we didn't know what it was. And we're, we're listening, waiting to go on the air, and, and it's surfing with the aliens. And we're like, what the hell is this? And we went in the studio, and before, before we even sat down, we're like, Kane and I asked this guy, what were you just playing? And he showed us this surfing with the aliens. And we're like, oh, my God, Satriani. It's incredible, you know, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So your brother did you a solid. I mean, one hundred percent. And then uh, from there, of course, my education. Which Dylan album? Uh, I can I can picture it. It's yeah. brownish, and I think there's a. He's got the overcoat. I can't. Is think it of, Blonde on Blonde? The two albums. It might set? be Blonde on Blonde. I'd say Blonde on Blonde is yeah. brownish. It, it's a uh, you know. But I just I remember <clears throat> I had my little Fisher Price record player, and you know I went in my room and shut the door and played it and. In my life, yeah. you know, it's See, a, music changes your that's life. That's what big brothers and big sisters are for. Yeah. My, my younger brother, I, I, he used to come to a lot of shows with me. He remembers coming to more shows than I remember taking him to. But we actually have a couple of pictures of, of stuff like that. And we had a great time. And he's four years, only four years younger than me. But it was a lot of fun to share that with, with, with him. Heck yeah. So. What was it about, uh, what is it about the girl thing that you are obsessed with? Other than the obvious, why in particular? This sounds very, very passionate about it. I don't know. That's a psychiatrist's <laughs> okay. I am passionate about it. I just I just fell in love with the sound of girls singing. Mm. Whether it was Leslie Gore or the Shangri-Las. And I love the Shangri-Las. I mean, who, what boy at that age didn't love the Shangri-Las? But I also loved like, the Ronettes. I traded my, several years later, I traded my great white wonder Bob Dylan bootleg, which was like the basement tapes, but years before. And it was one of the first legendary bootlegs. To Ron, with Ronnie Finkelstein, who was at Circus Magazine, he had a, an original copy of the Ronettes album on Phillies Records, and I traded my Great White Wonder to him for the Phillies Ronettes album, and I've never regretted it since. Um, they've both always been reissued. The Basement Tapes eventually came out. The Ronettes stuff eventually was reissued, but I was dying to have the Ronettes album, and um, and I loved the the Shangri-Las. I was lucky enough. Through total fluke to have met Marty Coopersmith from Jane the Americans. They were all Jewish, even though they had fake last names to be in the Americans back then. And um, Marty Sanders. Marty, and he now is Marty Coopersmith, so I can say that. And we'd become friendly, I, totally on a fluke. And there was an oldie show, maybe the first ever oldie show at the Academy of Music in New York, years before it became the Palladium. And now it's at NYU dorm, um, where Trader Joe's is, by the way, on 14th Street. Um, he, uh, he, there was like an oldie show and and I went to the show and I I, I think this was before there were backstage passes because I just remember being backstage at events but I don't remember having any passes this is how long ago this was and and I'm like cool because I'd never seen Jane the Americans perform but I, I'd met him separately and like, that's really cool he says but Shangri-Las were on the show I'm like Marty Shangri-Las he says you like the Shangri-Las that much I'm like the Shangri-Las he says you want to meet them I'm like yeah and I met them, and I was talking to Mary Weiss, who was, I mean, I was tongue-tied, but I was trying to talk to Mary Weiss, which is insanely stupid. And um, I must have been 20, 21 um, by then. And, 
and I blurted out that I was working with this band that played clubs and did some Shangri-La's covers called the New York Dolls. And did she know about them? And she was like, no. I'm like, you should come and see them. They're playing at Kenny's Castaways. Would you like to be my guest next week? She gives me her phone number. It's like, this is not a date. Trust me, this is not a date. I'm so far out of my league. This is not a date. And uh, But she met me there and enjoyed the show and I introduced her to the band. David Johansson just about fell on his face when I introduced him to, to Mary Weiss from the Shangri-Las. And, um, and she's my Facebook friend now and probably, and does not know that story. Wouldn't remember it in a million years, but I still get a thrill every time she likes one of my posts on mm. Facebook. So cool. Yeah. How'd you get Susie Quattro on Happy Days? Okay, well, so Susie Quattro was, I knew her from the, uh, from the Detroit scene because I was involved in Cream Magazine and all that stuff and, and the White Panthers. You wrote for all, a ton of different magazines. Yeah, yeah, but I was very involved with Cream. I was their New York rep and I spent a lot of time at their, their, their headquarters in downtown Detroit on Cass Ave and then out in Walled Lake with, with uh, Dave Marsh and Lester Bangs and Barry Kramer and Charlie Oranger and Rick Siegel and Jan Uhelski. And Jan was very involved in the new Cream documentary. Um, and, um, and also with the White Panthers, with John Sinclair and the MC5 and that whole crowd in, in Ann Arbor. So I was spending a lot of time in Michigan. And through that, and there was a band called Pride of Women that was rehearsing at the Cream offices that was an all-girl band. But there was another band called Cradle that was actually a better all-girl band, with all due respect. And Cradle had come out of the Pleasure Seekers, and it was the Quattro Sisters. And the oldest Quattro, Quattro sister, Arlene, had quit the band to get married and have kids. So the younger Quattro sister had joined when it became Cradle. Cradle was like cream. It was this, Pleasure Seekers was like a pop rock group. You know, they wore matching mini skirts. I mean, it was a whole different thing. But Cradle was more rock and they sounded more like cream, you know, and uh, I still have the demo tapes. And I thought they were really good. And I'd met those girls. And um, and that was pretty cool. And then, um, and then uh, Mickey Most was in Detroit with Jeff Beck and saw them and picked Susie Quattro out of the, the group and said, I don't want to sign the band, but if you ever want to go solo, here's my number kind of thing. So she did. And there's a whole bunch of stories there about how I kept in touch with her and ended up writing the liner notes for the first album in America and doing her PR in America. And then things came to a, a, a grounding halt in America because nothing got any traction and she was making more money recording and touring overseas. And um, one day I'm sitting in my office and uh, working with Blondie, doing my, my stuff. And... And I get this call from a, a woman at, um, at uh, Happy Days in the casting office. And she's like, we've got this possible role we thought might be good for Debbie Harry. Do you think she'd be interested? I said, tell me the role. And she's like, tells me the role. And I'm like, yeah, it's not Debbie Harry. Now, if you saw Scarface, the Michelle Pfeiffer character is Debbie Harry. In fact, we did have a casting call, casting offer from them for her for that role which she declined. She actually declined. But that role, that look is Debbie Harry. Um, and uh, anyway, so, so I said, it doesn't sound like Debbie Harry, but it really sounds like Susie Quattro, who's another artist I've worked with. Maybe Joan Jett, who was friends of mine, although I wasn't representing her yet, but I said, maybe Joan Jett. I was just getting involved with them at the time. And, um, and I said, well, we know about Joan Jett. She's a little young and a little maybe uncontrollable, she was at the time. And, uh, but who's this Susie Quattro? So I said, well, based on the description you gave me, which was a tough-talking, singing, rock and rolling musician, you know, spitfire, uh, I think she's it. So the girl 
says, okay, could you send us over some information, a package? So I'm like, I put together a video. I had a video of some TV performances, three-quarter inch, the old three-quarter inch bulky cassettes. I had some press clippings. I had a record. I, I messengered over a package that afternoon. She calls me back and she says, the casting people are, are interested. Would she, do you think she'd come in for a meeting? An audition. I'm like, well, she's on tour in Australia right now. And by the way, this is the true story that it won't be in Susie's documentary. It probably isn't in Susie's book. And, um, and uh, I said, but let me see if I can find her now. We had no internet. This is like 1977. There's no cell phones. You know, so I wake wait till late at night when it's the time difference to, from LA to London to call Mickey Most, who was her overall manager, the label head at Rack Records in London. Um, by the way, look up Mickey Most, the greatest, most unappreciated producer of all time. And, um, and, I, and I told him, and I said, do you think you could find out where she is in Australia? Because maybe she's flying back through the U.S. to go back to home in England, maybe to see her parents. You know? And he said, yeah, she, she actually is stopping in Detroit to see her parents after the tour. So I, he says, I'll have her call you. So hours later, she calls, because the time differences are enormous at that point. And there's, he's got to then try and reach her. And um, she called me. She says, what is, what is this? Mickey said, I should call you about Happy Days. I'm like, you know Happy Days? She says, yeah, it's a, it's a TV show. It was the number one sitcom in the world at that time. And I said, they've got a role that you are perfect for, but, um, but they, want, they wonder if you'll come and read and audition. And, and I thought, well, I wouldn't fly all the way around the world for it, but if you're stopping back in the U.S. on your way home, are you coming through L.A.? She says, yeah, we're coming through L.A. I said, could you stop for a couple of days? And when? And she told me, and I said, okay, I'll make all the arrangements. So I called them, I booked the thing, and I got her a hotel room and a rent-a-car, met them at the airport, and we went and did the audition. And she killed it. They're like, how does she know how to hit her mark? I mean, she's done 200 TV shows as a performer. Of course she knows how to hit her mark and knows where the camera is. And she was the... If, if you had paid the writer to describe Susie Quattro in the character. That's how accurate the description was of, of her character, Leather Tuscadero. It was Susie Quattro. Did she come up with the famous... Yeah, I think she did, actually. I don't think they did that. I think, she the, did the, uh, like, I think she did the little pistol thing. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't remember anybody else coming up with it. And I was there every day, although yeah. I was there full time. But I don't know if one of the writers or the directors or somebody said, hey, try this. She's she had to go with something. Yeah. But there was a chemistry. And she did a great audition. She yeah. really was Leather Tuscadero. She was. I mean, no, 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 no. Leather Tuscadero was her. Yeah. I still think the writers knew who she was, but mm. I can't. Mm. I, you know, I never found out. So they, they, she did this, and it's Gary Marshall, and it's his his other sister, Ronnie Hallen, who was the casting director, not Penny Marshall, but his other sister, Ronnie, and this guy, Gary Mentier. They were the two casting people, and a couple of the producers and writers, and um, and they're like, she, this is great, you know. Let's walk back to the soundstage and and uh, and uh, and meet the cast because. You know, she might be our girl. They didn't commit. We're walking out to the soundstage, and Henry Winkler comes out of the soundstage, and he looks at her and says, Hey, Susie Quattro, what are you doing here? I was like, done. I knew we had it at that point. But then we went back to my office at the hotel um, to await their call. And in the interim, Elvis Presley died. That's the day. And Elvis Presley was her idol. That's the way Joan Jett was inspired by Susie. Susie was inspired by Elvis. That's why she wore leather. That's why she was in rock and roll. It was pretty crushing. And I, I called her to tell her because I heard it on the radio when I got back to my office. You know, there's no internet, again. And um, 
And I'm like, we're supposed to meet for lunch and then go do some shopping and blah, blah, blah. I said, just relax. Let's just deal with this right now. She's like, I can't believe this. I'm like, nobody can believe this. And then I got the call from Happy Days. Like, we want this deal. Can we make a deal? Susie's in. We want her. So I called her back. I said, you got the deal. She says, that's the way it works. You know, Elvis died and he passed the torch and I got the gig. It gives me the shivers. That's exactly how it happened. That's exactly how it happened. Wow. So, and there were more complications about the songs and the recordings and the you know, sure. but, but, but it was a great, it was incredible for her because she, she just came alive. Well, she always does on the screen because she's got that great charisma. Yeah. She's got the charisma. Oh, yeah, you couldn't not look at her. You, you watch old Happy Days episodes yeah. and anything that she's, yeah. yeah. She's a great performer. Yeah. I mean, you know, delivered live on stage every night. What a, what a life you've led. Would, are you first real writing a book or was that in passing? Just sort no, of- people have always said you should write a book and I'm like, what's my financial incentive? You know, I mean, I don't, I'm not, you know, uh, do I really care about the glory? I mean, just the stories. I, I don't even have a Wikipedia for, page. For pe- really? Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, you for know. people who, like myself, is the people listening who are, these stories, they, they, they move us. For a guy whose PR company's name and nickname was Famous Toby Mamus, I'm surprisingly not caught up in the fame part. Yeah. Um, I think they did that because it rhymed. <laughs> we, it's exactly what, you, you hit it. That's exactly how it came up with it. It was my nickname in summer camp because it rhymed. Okay. And it ended up working. Yeah. And uh, it's exactly how it happened. But, uh, but you know, I've never really pursued that all these years. I, I got more involved in, in, in working with the artists on their behalf. And, uh, and I've been fortunate because I, maybe because I have good taste because I've rarely worked with artists I didn't like. And I've turned down working with artists that I didn't want to work with um, and subsequently probably not made as much money as I could have. But uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to, to work with artists I liked. Well, it sounds like it never was about the money for you. No, that's why I'm not rich. Yeah, you're rich in other ways, <laughs> yeah, I, obviously. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I no. don't panic about it. You get it, to ski almost I, I have a day. lot of friends <laughs> who have a lot more money. A lot of them have sold their companies for a lot of money or they've progressed up the chain of jobs in the music industry and made a lot of money, uh, and, and I'm happy for them. And they're happy for me that I live here and get to ski every day in fresh air and no traffic, and they come visit me. Yeah. You know, and I go visit them or we'll go to a ball game together. I, I think that had I made that much more money doing things I didn't want to do, I would probably would have spent all that extra money on psychoanalysis. So. <laughs> Plus, I mean, love is the coin of the realm, uh, right? Yeah. And the people you work with adore you. It's Some funny. do. It's, I, would it's say, I would say they don't all. Well, I think Alice adores you. We have a great relationship. We have a great friendship. Yeah. We have a great friendship and a mutual respect, you know. Um, you want the artists to trust that you know what you're doing, you know, and, and let you do it and not micromanage you. You know, and that's important too. And I've been fortunate enough most of the time to have that kind of relationship with artists where they were like, okay, he knows what he's doing. We'll let him do it. I mean, there was a time when uh, there was a personnel issue within Blondie and I thought they needed a bass player. And because uh, um, they had two successive bass players, both great guys, both very talented, but were both guitarists who wanted to play bass to be in Blondie as opposed to being bass players. And there's a difference. There is. You know, and... Um, and uh, so I said, you guys should get a bass player that's really a bass player. Now, I'm not a musician. I only played trumpet in junior high school and high school. I'm not really a musician. So I said, but if you get a really good bass player, it'll help Clem be a better drummer. He's already one of the best drummers in the world. But when a bass player and drummer lock in, that rhythm section locks in, and it's, it's incredible, and the beat doesn't waver. 
And then when the beat doesn't waver, the singer, like Debbie, for instance, won't have to keep looking back behind her to find out where the song is going. She can just be Debbie. And, um, and, and you got this really cool guy who's playing bass to be in the band, but he's also a really good guitar player. Keep him. Have two guitars in the band. It'll strengthen the whole overall sound. And they looked at me and said, you're so smart, fine, as a bass player. Which I did by sound check time later that day. And uh, it was the right move. But did I ruffle a few feathers? Maybe the, you know, some people think, well, you know, what does he know about music, you know? And why is he criticizing this whole thing? And, you know, so there's, you know, you ruffle feathers once in a while. But I, I said what I said. And, mm-hmm. and I delivered the bass player. Yeah. If I didn't deliver the bass player, it'd be a horrible story. <laughs> yeah, so. Toby, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Honestly, I appreciate your time. I could do this for hours, unfortunately. I think that's but, great. But if I had a book deal, I could do it for hours promoting a book sale. Absolutely. But there's no book yet. Well, I'd like to see that happen. I'd there, love to read there's the book. Some, there are four or five half-written chapters, a list of chapter headings, a title that I'm not allowed to reveal. But no money on the table. Hmm. That is about money because it takes a lot of time and effort to write a book and you shouldn't do it for free. I agree. So. I agree. I don't think the creative energies are worth something. Yeah. My problem is my book is all about rock and roll, about politics, about life, about you know enjoying life. It's, there's no sex. There's no drugs. There's no scandals. From your end. That I know of. <laughs> uh, I'm, if I'm writing it, I'm pretty much sure what won't be in it. Yeah. Let's put it that way. <laughs> So that's the problem. You know, how do you sell a book that doesn't have sex? About rock and roll, it doesn't have sex and drugs. Yeah. And you're not famous, you know, because I'm not the artist, you know. Uh, it's hard. Who's going who's gonna to pay 15 bucks for a book about a guy they never heard of? Well, I'll say this about Shep's film, Supermensch. Cool film. But again, you're saying, who's going to pay 12 bucks at the movie theater to see a movie about a guy they never heard of? I did. A lot of people saw it on cable. A lot of people saw it on airplanes. A lot of people saw it and liked it. Great film. Not necessarily a box office film at no. the theaters. Mike Myers did that, right? Yes, Mike yeah. Myers did. He did a great job. It's yeah. a funny, endearing, warm film. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a great story because Shep is a unique personality in the history of our business. So, yeah. but I don't mean to, I'm not promoting them, just no, saying. I but again, it. my thought was who's going to pay 12 bucks at a theater? To go see a movie about some guy. The people who are passionate, like you are, like I am. But it became, it got a lot more traction on cable, on satellite, and on airplanes. Yeah. Like the Joan Jett documentary. She's famous, but most of my friends lately have been saying they've seen it on airplanes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, people read on airplanes. There's a lot of bookstores in airports. That's also true. That's also true. (laughs) Toby, thank you. I appreciate your time and your stories. Okay, I hope I didn't piss anybody off, but if I did, too bad. It was all great. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. Please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Bye.